Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. As he brings the word, as he proclaims your word, that he would decrease as you would increase, as that your glory would be proclaimed. Open our hearts and our minds to be transformed and renewed. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jeremy. 32 years, that's a long time. When somebody asks us, tell, tell us about what it's like in Indonesia. I, you know, you got 30 years to pick from there. You've got to be a little selective. But uh, I kinda, it helps me to break it down to, into stages of 10 years. Um, we were appointed in 85, so 85, and then 95, 2000. It just kind of helps me. It reminds me of a story of a guy that wanted to join a group of monks, a order of monks. And uh, in order to do that, he had to take a vow of silence. And in, for each 10 years he was there, he was allowed two words. Can you imagine? Two words only. So he served faithfully for 10 years. Finally, at the end of it, he went and talked to his superior, and he said, okay, you're given two words. What's it going to be? Food bad was his two words. And he went on, served 10 more years. And he stuck it out. It seemed like that 10 years went, was longer than the first 10. Finally, he succeeded, finished it out, went to his superior, and he said, okay, what's it going to be? You're, you're allowed two more, two more words. And he said, bed hard. And then finally, he served the 10 years out to 30 years. And he finished it finally. He went to his superior and said, okay, you're allowed two more years. You've served your third stage of 10 years. And he goes, I quit. And his superior said, well, you might as well quit. You haven't done anything but complain since you've been here. <laughs> I'd like to say we haven't done any complaining since being with the IMB, but we've been, we have done a lot of thanksgiving and praise. Praise to the Lord, but also praise to Southern Baptists like you guys at Rosemont that enable us to fulfill our calling because God called us back in 1983 to go and serve in Southeast Asia, and we've been there uh, since 1985. So we, we count it a privilege to be here today and share with you a little bit about what God is doing there. And uh, it reminds me of a story also of a famous missionary by the name of John G. Patton. Now John G. Patton was from Scotland and toward the end of the 19th century he and his wife felt called to go serve as missionaries in the um, South Sea to the New Hebrides Islands. The only thing about that was is, is a lot of risk involved because there were cannibals that still lived there and, and controlled the islands. Well, you can imagine what his family and friends said to him. They tried to discourage him from going there. And they said, you've got to be crazy taking your family to a place that has cannibals there and uh, you need to stay here. And he goes, well, it seems to me I've got two choices. I could do what you're asking me to do which would mean I could play it safe, stay in Scotland, and uh, display lack of faith, unbelief, and be disobedient to God, and end up being buried in the church graveyard and be eaten by worms later. Or I could go in obedience and faith and do what God told me to do and go to the New Hebrides Islands and be in obedience to him and possibly eat, be eaten by cannibals. So what's going to be, cannibals or worms, you know? 
So he said, I think I'm going to go with the latter. And he ended that by setting sail for the New Hebrides Islands. And Billy Graham uh, talks of him in his book, Angels. If you ever read that book, I would encourage you to do that. He talks about how John G. Patton and his wife were attacked one night by some of these cannibals that he had heard about. And sure enough, they came in an angry mob with, with torches. That they were going to burn his house down. And he didn't know what to do. You ever felt like that? It's kind of what I'm pre preaching about, where you don't know what to do. What do you do? You just cry out to the Lord. And, and that's what he was doing. He and his wife prayed all night, starting around midnight when that angry mob came. And they just prayed, they prayed, they prayed, until finally the sun began to rise. And they looked out, and that angry mob with her torches had dispersed and gone away. Come to find out, about a year later, the chief of that tribe who led that raid on his house had gotten saved. And he had been uh, in, impacted by the testimony of John G. Patton. And John G. Patton asked him, why did you come that night intending to kill us, to burn our house down? Why did you end up leaving? He goes, and the chief said this, there was no possible way we were going to take you alive because of all those soldiers you had surrounding your house, protecting your house. Well, John G. Patton didn't know what he was talking about, but apparently when he was praying, God had opened up the eyes of these angry cannibals and enabled, to see them, uh, enabled them to see the unseen world. You know, there is an unseen world, and I'm going to preach a little bit about that today. And as we look at the life of the prophet Elisha, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. A similar story takes place in chapter 6 of the book of 2 Kings. We find the prophet Elisha and his servant. Now, when it uses the word servant, this was his partner in ministry. This is the one that was not only his partner in ministry, probably his best friend that God had in, entrusted him with. And God had entrusted him to disciple him and mentor him. And I want you to notice in this passage, as, as the army from Aram is sent by the military leader up near Damascus, and he sends this military to capture Elisha, the prophet, and his servant. And because he was irate, because of the fact that he was getting all of his military intelligence intercepted, every time he would plan something and send troops, it was as if, it was as if Elisha was reading his mail. He knew what was going to go, what was going to happen. So the king of Aram was irate, he was angry, he sent this uh, military battalion down there to capture and to kill both Elisha and his servant. You can imagine the way he felt. When the servant of Elisha got out in the morning, went out on his front porch to bend down maybe to get the newspaper, and as he looked, he raised his eyes, his house, that summer cottage, was surrounded by these military leaders from a foreign power. You can imagine how he felt. Full of fear. And notice what he says. If you have a Bible, you can look at chapter 6 of 2 Kings. Notice what he says. Very important. In verse, seven, in verse 11, verse 15, I'm sorry. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early in the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Notice what he says here. Oh, my Lord, 
what shall we do? The servant asked. You ever, you ever say that? Kind of uh, muttering a prayer to the Lord. Oh my God, what am I going to do in this situation? You may be facing a situation right now. You may be facing some circumstances in your own life, maybe health issues, maybe a problem at work, maybe a problem in your own ministry, and maybe in your own personal life. And you may be facing a problem here this morning, and you may be kind of saying in your heart, Lord, what do I do? It's kind of what King Jehoshaphat said in similar circumstances where the city of Jerusalem had been attacked by people from Moab. And as he looked around, he saw the city of Jerusalem surrounded by his enemies. You know what he did? He went to the Lord in prayer. And you know what he said? He said, Lord, we don't know what to do. Let me just say that's a good beginning point in prayer. Somebody once said that prayer is coming in a sense of helplessness, in a realization that we do not have the resources in our own strength, in our own wisdom to solve life's problems, to accomplish challenges in ministry. We don't have the resources. And like King Jehoshaphat prayed, Lord, we don't know what to do. But you remember what he said after that? But our eyes are fixed on you. That's faith. That's trust. That's coming in that poverty of spirit as we come to the Lord in prayer and we make known to him our request. This morning, I want you to notice what happens after that, after he says that. Notice what happens and what the prophet says and does for his servant or for his partner in ministry. You can see that in verse 16. Don't be afraid. It's interesting that the word phrase, don't be afraid, fear not, whatever, however you read it, is used 365 times in the Bible. If you you count it, you can do this tonight if you're bored, before you go to sleep, maybe instead of counting sheep, count how many times you can read, do not be afraid or fear not. 365 times. I don't think that's a coincidence. Same number of days in a year. It tells us not be afraid. Why? Because, you see... Fear can absolutely paralyze us and keep us from sharing the gospel. It can paralyze and immobilize that we do not, we no longer live by faith, but we walk by sight. And that's what was going on in this guy's life. But notice what Elisha says to him. He answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That's when the servant of Elisha knew that his his, his master had been out in the sun too long. That his elevator didn't go all the way to the top, so to speak. As he was saying, it's just two of us, and look at all these people surrounding us. And notice what he did next. He starts praying for him. And this is what we want to look at this morning. And the importance of prayer. We all know to understand that. But they're all different kinds of prayer. You got thanksgiving, you got praise, you got confession, you got listening, you got petition. But I want you to notice in this passage, it tells us much and informs and instructs us much about what intercessory prayer is all about. I don't know if your church is a praying church. I would like to think it is. And, uh, but I want you to notice, it can instruct a church or a person individually as you walk with Christ about how to pray and what to pray for. Notice what he prayed for at the beginning. Lord, in verse 17, Elisha, Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he might see. 
Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw that the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What had happened? What was the difference? Well, God had suddenly just kind of pulled back the veil that separated the visible world from the invisible. And in that split second, the servant of Elisha was able to see the invisible world that he had not seen before. And suddenly he realized, sure enough, those that were with him and his master outnumbered the forces that had come to take him captive. What is prayer all about? Prayer, basically, is praying for others that they may see the provision of God in their life. You know, you're probably discipling somebody in your life. You're impacting someone, maybe a family member, your children, and maybe uh, someone that you work with. But, you know, God brings people along our path for that very purpose. And that is for us to impact their lives in such a way that they will advance in spiritual disciplines, that they will advance and grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the thing that he's praying for here? He's praying that he would understand and and know the provision of God that was available to him for his ministry. Let me just say that the greatest thing that we can pray for, for those that you're discipling, your children, your friends, Those people in your discipleship classes, the people at your work you're trying to influence. The greatest thing you can pray is that God would open up their eyes and see the provision that he has given them. It's called the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus started his ministry, the inaugural part of his ministry was his baptism. And you remember when John had baptized Jesus, you remember what John said? I baptize you with water, but one who is coming after me, who will be, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to unleash, he will baptize you, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. From the very get-go in the ministry of Jesus, He and others were trying to point his disciples to something very significant. And that is to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. When Jesus, before he was taken up to heaven in his ascension. Did you all know that this week was the ascension day? Unbelievable. But in Indonesia, a Muslim country, they have have a holiday where they celebrate not only Easter... And Good Friday, they celebrate Ascension Day. It was just last week. And our churches get together. The Muslims don't celebrate it, but uh, our churches get together and celebrate that. But right before Jesus was ascended, he said some very important things to his disciples. One of them, of course, was the mandate, the marching orders, the great commission, go and make disciples of all nations. And here, right before he was ascending to heaven, he had some more instruction for them. And you would think he'd say, okay, I've given your marching orders to you. I've given you the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Now go ahead and start forming committees. Start making up plans. Start getting out there and doing it. But he didn't say that. You remember what he said? Tarry ye there in Jerusalem. Wait in the city of Jerusalem. Why? So that you might be clothed with power from on high. Jesus understood that if they were going to effectively carry out the marching orders of the Great Commission that he had entrusted them with, they were going to need to understand the importance of the great provision that he has provided for them in the power of the Holy Spirit. He said the same thing in the book of Acts in chapter 1. 
before the Holy Spirit was poured out on his church in chapter 2. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 4. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the, for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. It was absolutely essential for his, those early disciples, just like it is for us, to understand the power of the Holy Spirit. Probably the most neglected person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's who? The Holy Spirit. And why is that? See, he's not just a power or an impersonal force. He is a person. And we need to understand the person, the office, the role, the importance of being filled, controlled, and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's so important and essential if we're going to serve the Lord the way He intends us to serve Him. It wasn't long ago that uh, my wife and I, Shelly, attended a service in the city where we served. And uh, that particular Sunday, we did not, I was not preaching. And, uh, but we had a guest that we had brought, a mother and her daughter. And the daughter was, had just gotten saved, and she was going to walk the aisle. You know how at the end of the service, when the pastor gives an invitation, they walk the aisle? Well, that particular Sunday, they had a guest speaker. And this guest speaker was not a Baptist, but he preached. Uh, in essence, basically, he preached that evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit is you've got to speak in tongues. And to make matters worse, because that's not what Baptists believe, but to make matters worse, instead of giving the normal invitation, he went to every person in the pews, one by one, and prayed for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit and give evidence by speaking in tongues. I was irate, folks. When I left the church, I was a man. I was still fuming. And I called the guy who set that up. He's an Indonesian pastor, friend of mine, but he's the one that invited this guy. And I asked him, why in the world, Rudy, did you invite this guy here? You've, you've confused everybody. And by the afternoon, and I just kind of told him off, and by that afternoon, I was feeling pretty good about myself. Until the Holy Spirit started convicting me about something that was even more serious, seriously wrong than what he did. And that is that there, every person in that, in that congregation, they left more confused when they left. They were more confused than when they came. And the reason is, is because they had never been discipled. They had never been taught about who is the Holy Spirit. Why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens when we get saved? We're baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there are many fillings of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be not only controlled, we need to be led by the Holy Spirit. We need to keep in step with the power of the Holy Spirit. And what happened that particular Sunday opened up my eyes to the realization, hey, folks, there are a lot of Baptists have no understanding of the role and the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And it's evidence in the way they live their lives. There's a contradiction in what they say and in what they do. And not even getting into the fact how many Baptists have actually led a person to faith in Christ. I think the last statistics I used were 5%. That means 95% have never shared the gospel, or if they had, they haven't led a person to Christ, which means they failed to understand one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is to give, the, give this boldness and witness. Point is this, very simply, we need to be praying for the folks we're discipling, that they understand the power, the role, the person of the Holy Spirit in their life. 
Notice the second thing he prayed for. It's in verse 20, if you're following along in chapter 6. And that is, not only did he, the scope of his prayer began to get enlarged. You see, basically it was the same prayer. He was praying that God would open up the eyes of not only one person, but many people. And he began to do that in verse 20. Let's read that. Chapter 6, verse 20. And after they entered the city, Elisha Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Not just one man, these men. He prayed for many to have their eyes open spiritually. You know, when Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, he had never, uh, he had been to Ephesus, but he had not met all those believers. But it's interesting, as you look at one of his prayers, he prayed that, he, that God would open up the eyes of their hearts, that they may understand the hope to which they had been called, that they may understand the glorious inheritance that are ours, that is ours in the saints, that they may understand the incredibly great power, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that's what he prayed for. And even though, even though, He had not not met many of those. He prayed for large groups of people to do some things. And uh, there was a guy by the name of uh, John David uh, Tripp. Great book called All. I would recommend it to you. But in that book, he said, basically, as Christians, we need to be asking two questions. First question is this. Stay with me here, especially young people. What's the first question? What on earth is God doing right now in my life, right here, right now? What's he doing? That's the first question that Christians should be asking. What on earth? You know, Henry Blackaby told us to ask that question when he said in his first reality of experiencing God, God is at work all around us. And then the second one is this. John David Tripp in his book, all he says, what am I doing to respond to it? So it's not just praying, where are you working, God? How am I responding to what he's doing around me? There's a guy who we served with on the field that was a seminary professor with me. He and I taught at the seminary, Baptist Seminary, in the city that we uh, still live in. And uh, Charlie was asked in 2004 to take on the responsibility of being a team leader that would come up with a strategy to reach an area of 6 million people that were less than 1% Christian. That means 99% Muslim. Okay? And he agreed to take it. And you know what he started doing after he took that responsibility? 2004, he began to pray. And as Charlie said, in the way that he can only say, I just started praying ugly prayers. He started praying kind of like Jeremiah and some of the Psalms that you read, where you just start pouring your heart out to God. And he started praying, Lord, I have no idea what I'm doing. Lord, I don't know what to do. It's kind of what the servant prayed just a minute ago. Lord, I don't know what to do. Kind of what Jehoshaphat prayed as he saw the enemies against him come against the city of Jerusalem. Lord, we don't know what we're doing, but our eyes are on you. And it's in that sense of poverty of spirit. It's in that sense of, uh, here's the key, helplessness. Helplessness. Why is it that the chief sin of American churches 
is prayerlessness because they haven't come to the point of this helplessness that we can all engineer things the way we want them to work out in our own efforts, in our own ingenuity, in our own wisdom. Because that we don't see God working in our midst because we don't cry to him. And as Charlie began to pray, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing, but I pray that you would help me. You know what happened? God began to work in Indonesians' lives, and people started coming to faith. And he started forming teams, and they would go out witnessing. And he started forming teams of American volunteers that would come out every so often on mission trips, kind of what Randy leads your church on. He started forging some partnerships, and there was one guy that came out from North Carolina that started witnessing in the community. And they trained him how to use a simple track, and he shared his faith, he shared his testimony, and he started talking to this one guy, we'll just call him Mr. Magoo. He started talking to Mr. Magoo, and Mr. Magoo started getting convicted. And even though this guy did not speak his language, it had to be translated. It had to be translated twice into Indonesian, then into Javanese. And they started speaking the good news to him. And God began to do a work in this guy's heart. And Mr. Magoo became a key leader in that movement we call the Be New Movement, the Be New People. And over a period of about 13 years, we've seen 60,000 people come to faith, folks. These are people that are not background Presbyterian. These are people that are background Muslim. God is working. And over a period of 13 years, we've seen 17 generations of churches started, house churches started, where a church starts a church that starts a church that starts a church. That's what we've seen. God's at working. Prayerlessness is one of the key reasons we're not seeing God work in our midst. And James outlines that for us when he says, you have not because you ask not. And then he went through why we do not have many times even when we ask. We pray, but we do not receive because we, what? Pray amiss. That we kind of have our own agenda. We want him to do our work and our agenda, but because of that, God does not answer. It's when we start praying God's agenda and aligning our prayers with the will of God and the heart of God that we're going to see like Charlie did, our prayers are going to start get answered. There are basically two ways to describe prayer. I've heard it described as a vehicle that takes us into the presence of God, but also as a key that unlocks heaven's doors and so God can pour out his blessing. There's a story of an eight-year-old child that died, went to heaven, saw what heaven was like, came back and wrote a book about it. Whether it was true or not, it illustrates a point, and this is, it's this. When he was there, he saw all these warehouses with these packages, with names of believers on them, names of churches, names of pastors, deacons, names of people, uh, unreached people groups that God wanted to answer but never sent because the prayerlessness of God's people. The third thing that I think we can affect is you see it at the last part of that passage in verse 22 through 24 where you have all these unbelievers who came to, to kill Elisha and his servant and they're radically changed. And that is when we pray, we pray for the lost. The Bible talks about how the God of this world has blinded the minds, the hearts, the eyes 
of lost people that they do not recognize who Jesus is. Why did God touch 60,000 or so people in, in the area where we live who have a background in Islam? Because someone was praying for them. Someone went to the mat in intercessory prayer and prayed that God would open up their eyes so he would pour out his spirit upon them. Prayer is that arsenal that God entrusts us with to pray that God would pour out his spirit and bring many to faith in him. You may be praying for somebody in your family. You know, I believe the greatest way to learn how to pray is not just read books about prayer. Books help. I remember when I first got saved, I started reading everything I could about intercessory prayer. Andrew Murray, E.M. Bounds. Yeah, T.L. Gordon. Started reading all these books. But you know what I found out? The greatest way to learn about prayer is what? Do it! It's kind of like riding a bike. I remember when I first got my, I got my first bike. It had training wheels on it. And can you imagine my father when he gave me that bike? He said, now, before you ride that bike, this is the history of riding bikes. You, got, you need to read that. Or these are the simple seven steps of riding bicycles. Or the, the, the mechanics of bicycles. He didn't say all that. He just said, ride it. Just ride it. And the church that I was saved at in 1975 in Louisville, Kentucky, had an intercessory prayer ministry where that's where I learned how to pray. And each member was asked to take one hour a week. I took 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock every, every Wednesday to come and pray. And we had three books. One was green, one was red, one was black. And in that red book was emergency prayer requests left in there for seven days. The second book, the green book, emergency prayer request for, thir for six weeks. The final book, the black book, was, was permanent prayer requests. They stayed in there until they got answered. I had three brothers that I put in there back in about 1976. Two of them have already been saved because of the result of prayers. One of them has yet to be saved. But you know what? You know what faith is? Faith is just believing that God's going to answer it, even though by all appearances, he's not doing anything. Some of you have some doubts in your hearts right now about whether God's going to answer your prayers because he didn't give you the answer immediately. But that's where faith comes in. We put ourselves on God's timetable and say, Lord, you bring it about according to your schedule and according to your perfect timing. That's faith. There's an old gal by the name of Miss Campbell that... From Muhlenberg, Kentucky, Muhlenberg County, Kentucky, she said, you know, prayers are kind of like balloons floating in the air. Even though someone's dead and gone, their prayers are still floating out there. God will always remember them. You know, out of those three prayer requests for my brothers, two have been answered. One in 1993, one in 2007, and you know what? And the final one with Terry and Pam, his wife, who both lost, we're seeing God at work. God has already showing signs he's working in my brother's heart and life. We've got a month before we head back to the field. I'm, gonna, I'm going for the jugular <laughs> before we go back. Because we prayed for this guy. And listen, folks, God answers prayers. And I want to encourage you to not give up, to keep praying. Even though you don't have the answer, keep praying and trusting. Pray for those lost people that may be answered after you're dead and gone. I bet you there's some grandmothers here or grandfathers or moms and dads whose kids are still away from the Lord, have rebelled. But listen, you keep praying for them. God's going to bring it about. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you.
for your word and how it instructs us on how to pray and how to see work in our lives like you did in the Be New People group where you brought thousands to faith. Lord, we just recognize that as your mighty sovereign hand at work because your people prayed. I pray that a prayer revival would take place in this church. That's my prayer. Lord, I know there are some people here with some needs, and I pray that you would work in their hearts and lives this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a need this morning. You may need to be prayed for. Or maybe you'd like to come and just pray at the altar. Pray for your country. What a better weekend to come and pray for your country than Memorial Day weekend. To just pray that revival would take place in our country. Listen, there's no political solution for our country. It is a spiritual problem. And we need revival. Would you pray? Would you pray? Would you come and just pray at the altar? Would you pray for your family? Maybe you got someone God has entrusted you with that you need to be discipling, that you need to be pouring your life in, and they need to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in their lives, that they might understand God's provision to serve Him, to serve Him effectively and faithfully. As we stand together and sing, you come as we sing, as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.